Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today I wanted to start with a question. I'm going to try to do my best Big Lebowski voice. What makes a mammal? <laughs> Uh, yeah, thinking about mammals, what are a few common features of mammals? Of course, we know that uh, all mammals are vertebrates along with birds, reptiles, amphibians, and fish. They got the backbone going on. Mm-hmm. Mammals along with birds are, of course, endothermic or warm-blooded, which can, right. that can sometimes be a misnomer because as we've discussed before, there are cases where mammals can – cool their bodies down quite a bit. Right. Uh, most mammals, uh, excluding monotremes, have live births rather than laying eggs. Mammals generally have hair as opposed to scales or feathers. Right, unless they've lost that hair by becoming aquatic creatures. Or for reasons yet unknown. Right, or for living underground, etc., yeah. Yeah. And then we get to the big one. Of course, it is that mammals nurse their young with milk. And That's this right. is one of the real miracles of nature. It is really. I mean, we're not just we're not just saying that because milk has such an important role in uh, in human um, uh, child rearing, or because humans have this weird thing where we drink the milk of other species, mm-hmm. uh, especially around the holidays. You know, uh, this is kind of a, a, a slightly holiday themed episode because a lot of people drink uh, eggnog, boiled custard type drinks, which are uh, more traditionally milk based. Is is eggnog a dairy product? I thought it was made with eggs. I have no idea. Oh, yeah. There's cream in there. I mean, obviously, if you can get the, the soy nog, uh, which I have memories of being tasty. And yet this year I picked Do you, up huh? – Yeah, I, I have memories. <laughs> I, I, like, I saw it in the store. I got kind of excited. I got a, a particular carton of soy nog, brought it back home to share with my son um, who is um, who's, uh, who's six – and uh, and he said, "Oh, this is good. This tastes like wet, cold sugar." <laughs> and I was like, "Yeah, it does kind of taste like wet, cold sugar. It doesn't have this particular. I don't want to damn all soy nog because there, I, I have to be remembering something real. Uh-huh. But this particular one, yeah, did not have that fatty, creamy." Uh, finish to it. Anything but like normal full-fat milk products always does have a kind of strange sweetness to it. Do you ever notice the odd sweetness of skim milk? There's something that feels a little off about it. Yeah, I mean, it's been a while since I've had skim milk. I do tend to, to just use um, like soy milk, um, almond milk, coconut milk, that kind of thing these days. Mm-hmm. Um, and thus my desire to uh, get in the Christmas spirit by buying soy nog. Right. But so, okay, it's not just uh, the role in human culture that we use the milk of other animals in our cuisine, which is pretty much objectively weird. I think that's one of those <laughs> things aliens would come to Earth and see us doing and think was weird. But it's also that it's it's a deep part of what we are as an animal. The possession of mammary glands and the rearing of children with milk is uh, – th- that's like a main morphological feature of what it means to be a mammal. It, d- the word mammal basically means uh, like breast beast. <laughs> Yeah, we are a bunch of breast beasts, really. So, yes, it nourishes our offspring and in doing so helps to establish immune system competence as well. Now, the exact nutrient composition of milk is going to vary across, a lot across species and it also can change quite a bit uh, depending on the different stages of lactation, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that's easy to overlook. Milk is not just uh, necessarily, oh, here's the, here's the formula coming out. No, the formula will change. The actual nutrient load will, will vary depending on the developmental stage of the young. 
So milk fat content in seals, for instance, can be as high as 60%. Uh, Meanwhile, it's basically nothing in wallabies. And speaking of wallabies, uh, according to The Origin and Evolution of Lactation by uh, Capuso and Akers, published in 2009, quote, milk in the tamer wallaby, that's uh, Macropus eugenii, changes from a very dilute secretion containing primarily carbohydrate during early lactation to a more energy-dense milk that contains substantial quantities of protein and fat during late phases of lactation. So that's a nice example of just how the the exact details of the the milk will change uh, during the course of the, uh, the young's growth. And we could probably devote a whole episode or multiple episodes in the future to the study of milk, true biological mammal milk, uh, because that's a fascinating subject on its own. But today we wanted to focus on something even weirder, which is all of the non-mammal, quote, milk that's out (laughs) there. There has been an astonishing amount of research that I had not kept up with until uh, diving into it recently about all – about animals you would just never expect to produce milk, producing something like milk. Yeah, I have to say this also forced me to learn about uh, a couple of different creatures I was not familiar with mm-hmm. that were brought to my attention solely because they produce something that one might call milk. So this will be our anomalous milk episode. But before we get into the anomalous milk, I guess it's worth a quick look at actual mammal milk itself. Right. Now, I know you've done some episodes on dairy products and on mammal milk uh, in the past, right? Yeah, there was, a, there was an older episode uh, that I did with Julie Douglas uh, back in the day. And then uh, more recently, did an episode with Christian Sayer uh, titled uh, uh, Holy Butter. Mm-hmm. As the name implies, it's mostly about butter and how we make butter and, and some of the uses we have for butter. Did y'all talk about bog butter? Yes, we did talk about bog butter. In oh, that one. bog butter is so good. Yeah. But we also talked about how butter and also milk is nothing short of solar energy transformed uh, through a few different steps into a food. For instance, uh, there's, the, of course, the, the alchemy of photosynthesis to kick things off. Mm-hmm. The grass in the field converts energy in the form of sunlight into chemical energy in the form of sugars and other carbohydrates. This is essentially the first miracle of milk. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you have a, uh, a female uh, ruminant, in this case, uh, cow, sheep, camel, water buffalo, goats, etc. They consume that grass. And truly, as uh, Elaine uh, Kosrova explores in uh, her tremendous book, Butter, A Rich History, um, <laughs> you're better off thinking of it as a processed harvesting uh, rather than a meal because ruminants are built to transform grass into milk. Uh, consider that they have these three or four chambered stomachs, uh, their um- upper dental pad instead of teeth uh, uh, for, ma- mas- for masticating greens, and each animal puts its own particular chemical spin on the process as well. Uh, but they crunch up the greens and they ferment them in their mini-chambered guts. Uh, eight hours feeding, eight hours ruminating, and then the re- remains of the day resting. Uh, so that uh, that maceration, the repeated chewing of the cud, helps to carry out uh, the second ma- uh, miracle of milk, the transformation of a low-fat diet of grass into high-fat milk. Yeah, you, you always wonder about that, right? Like you mm-hmm. look at the beginning product and the end product and you're like, I, I don't understand exactly what's happening here. Yeah, and, and part of this is just the, the miracle of digestion. The broken-down food is uh, assaulted by microbes in the oxygen-free fermentation chamber of the gut. Uh, the grassy meal is broken down to the basic elements, uh, strings of carbon and hydrogen molecules, and then other bacteria recombine the elements into volatile fatty acids. Only half the fat comes from the cow's diet. The rest comes from the cow's own body fat. Oh, wow. Yeah. 
And uh, so it's sort of it's not just making a product out of what it just ate, but it's giving of itself when yeah. it creates milk. And I think that's one of the reasons. Like we put the human layer on milk too, right? Like mm-hmm. milk is this this giving of sup- something. To, uh, to to bring nourishment to another. Mm-hmm. And, of course, we have so many metaphors related to that, including, of course, the, the milk of human kindness. But uh, uh, in this example, talking just about ruminant milk, um, it's a you know, fatty liquid to ensure the survival of the animal's young. And um, the exact composition, again, is going to vary from species to fe- species with additional factors depending on environment and diet. For instance, uh, a ewe produces twice the fat content of cow milk. Goat milk has smaller, more digestible fat molecules. Yak milk has less sugar and more protein. And camel's milk has three times as much vitamin C. Water buffalo milk has twice the fat of cow milk. And then we have things that are not even, um, you know, we don't traditionally think of as milk producers, but uh, consider the whales. Oh, yeah. Uh, blue whales, for instance, uh, uh, this this always blows my mind. Uh, a, a newborn blue whale gains 200 pounds a day just by nursing. And the average whale produces 40 times more milk than a cow. And this has even led some scientists to consider the possibility of milking whales in specially prepared milking bays and then using that milk for human consumption. Is there really any milk of any animal that has not been considered for human consumption? Um, Probably. I don't know. I mean, there's some that are certainly more attractive. Right. Um, but anytime you start reading around about different milks, I feel like there, there's a good chance somebody's tasted it and they will tell you what the flavor profile is. What does rat milk taste like? Ooh. Mm. Yeah. What yeah. What does monkey milk pair with? Hmm. I don't know. Ooh. <laughs> uh, I, I sometimes think about cat milk, like what like tiger milk would taste like. Would it be, would it, you know, or uh, would it have kind of a... Uh, like a meaty consistency to it? Probably uh, not. Like a nice French washed rind cat milk cheese. <laughs> I also, uh, this is a topic that uh, I discussed in that past episode with Julie, was of course the, 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 the idea that you do have certain situations that can cause males to lactate as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, some due to, so some are more like behavioral, environmental, and others have to do with irregularities in the body. But you also have certain male fruit bats that lactate. And these are the only examples of male mammals lactating as a part of a, a regular parental activity. Yeah, and you can see already in the idea of male animal lactation that there is going to be – there are going to be some like uh, asterisks next to the official like dictionary definition of milk, which is something like an opaque white fluid that's rich in fat and protein that's secreted by female mammals for the nourishment of their young. So obviously there's not – that's not quite all cases because in some cases males secrete it like the bats you're just talking about. And then I guess the question comes in where if you have something that meets all those qualifications but is not produced by a mammal, is that technically milk or not? I think a lot of biologists might say no, mm-hmm. but they they might still use the term in describing whatever this other substance is. What is the substance on The Simpsons that they're drinking in the school cafeteria? Is I it, think it's rat milk. Is it malk? Oh, or, malk. Yeah. Yes. What is now it? with vitamin R. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my bones. They feel so brittle. But I always drink plenty of malk. <laughs> well, maybe it's malk. Maybe it's malk. Well, whatever you call it, milk, milk, milk analog, there there are clearly strong reasons that non-mammalian animals would 
would have a, an incentive to secrete milk-like fluids that they use to feed their young. It's a really useful strategy and it serves quite a few different functions. I mean, for one thing, it allows the parent to produce food for their offspring without having to like leave or hunt or forage. You don't have right. to go out of the nest. Another thing is that it tightly controls the nutritional content of the offspring's food, making sure they get exactly what they need. And you can see that in the very different uh, nutritional profiles of milk like you were talking about earlier, like with wallabies and stuff. It's also a way for the young to eat of the mother without actually eating the mother. Yes, exactly. Uh, yeah, and so it can it can include extra nutrition, lots of fat and protein, maybe more fat and protein than you could expect to get from food sources in the environment. It's like super concentrating the nutrition profile for the young, which will help them speed up and grow faster. And then it can also deliver really important additives. Earlier, you mentioned immune function, and that does seem to be a very important role of, uh, of milk in animals, the idea of stimulating the immune system with antibodies or uh, supplementing the offspring's microbiome with microbiota like commensal bacteria from the mother. Yeah, I feel like this should come as no surprise following our poop eating, eating animals episode because mm -hmm. obviously if, if eating a little uh, uh, parental poop is going to provide that kind of a boost, obviously that kind of boost might uh, be available via milk. And then on top of all that, uh, like the additives for the immune system, you also can add hormones. This can be especially useful when it's like hormones that could have something to do with cementing the psychological bond between parent and child or things like growth hormone to help speed up the growth of the young. So with some of that in mind, it might be less surprising what I'm about to say, which is that a number of bird species secrete a substance analogous to milk. I think we should look at a few, Robert. Will you look at milk birds with me? Let's do it. How about pigeons? Huh. Pigeons, both male and female, regurgitate a highly nutritious substance known as crop milk into the mouths of their young. And uh, don't let the fact that it is delivered in the form of nourishing barf throw you off. This is not regurgitated food. This is not the parent bird providing a partially digested version of what they just ate. Crop milk is a separate original substance secreted in the crop organ. It's from the parent's body itself. Now, the crop organ is uh, – I don't know if you've ever seen one of these, Robert. It's sort of a – I have not. It's like a pouch area in the esophagus that can be used to store and moisten food before it continues on down the alimentary tract for digestion. And I think it's thought that um, the crop organ is useful for like prey species of birds that might be trying to gobble up a bunch of food really fast mm -hmm. while they're out somewhere exposed and then be able to fly off quickly and reduce the amount of time they're out there eating and exposed to predators. So you want to be able to just like stuff it all in, like get it right. all down there really fast and then get out of there and then you can settle down somewhere safe and try to digest. It's a, it's a, it's a doggy bag essentially yes. inside the body. Yes, exactly. It's, it's, your, uh, it's your styrofoam clamshell inside the bird's throat. And so the crop milk – it's actually produced by pigeons and doves. Uh, this is described in a paper I'll come back to in a minute as, quote, an oily, yellowish, cheese-like substance that is formed into small seed-sized rice-shaped pellets. I've, I've also seen it described as cottage cheese but yellow. Well, this sounds fine. I have no objection to any of that. Okay. So apparently crop milk – 
is produced by the inner cells of the crop pouch becoming moist and then sort of sloughing off into the pouch and then getting regurgitated. So it's like, here, son, let me barf you up some of my highly nutritious inside skin. Okay. This is my flesh, uh, et cetera. Gotcha. Right. Now, an interesting thing in birds and pigeons is that this process in parent pigeons is apparently controlled by the hormone prolactin, which is also what stimulates milk production in mammals. That's kind of interesting because, you know, they don't have mammary glands. It's not – you would think that it would be something completely different, but it's prolactin in both cases Hmm. that gets the parent doing this. Crop milk tends to be mostly protein and fat, about 60% protein, maybe 30-something percent fat, and then just a little bit of carbohydrates and minerals and other things in there. Uh, A 2012 study in PLOS1 by Megan Gillespie et al. found that if you took baby chickens and fed them crop milk from pigeons, they sort of became like little minor hulk chickens. (laughs) After just seven days, the pigeon milk chickens were more than 12% heavier than and control chickens, and also uh, they showed greater diversity of gut bacteria, specifically in the cecum, and they had higher expression of the immunoglobulin IgA, which is an uh, antibody class that's uh, crucial for all kinds of immune system function. Now, a side question you might be wondering is, why did they test this on chickens rather than on pigeons? I think the answer is that with pigeons, you couldn't really have a control group because young pigeons would just die without the crop milk. Mm-hmm. And there, I've read that there have been other studies that looked into this. They're like fed pigeon crop milk to chickens to see what happened. And the chicken's always really beefed up. It, it's like it's clearly something that their bodies respond well to. But there are some other birds that also produce uh, and feed their young with secretions from the upper digestive tract that are crop milk or something like it. Flamingos would be an example. Uh, Hmm. According – I was reading about the flamingo crop milk feeding on the San Diego Zoo website. They were talking about their flamingos. Oh, yeah. They have a great website, great outreach. Yeah, exactly. And so a few things they mentioned. One is that apparently when young chicks, uh, flamingo chicks are hungry and they're calling out for feeding – It's not just their own parents. Other adults in the flock can be stimulated to act as sort of foster feeders, which is sweet. That's cool. And the the way that seems to work is that they they suppose that hearing the sound of the hungry chicks calling for food stimulates the production of the the milk-like analog. And then also one of the things they say is that as – the parent flamingos produce crop milk to feed their chicks, their feathers tend to be drained of color over time. So like if you've got an adult that's producing crop milk, feeding a young one, it turns from pink to a pale pink or even to a white. And then after the they stop producing it, they gradually get their color back. Hmm. One more, of course, is emperor penguins. You may have heard about this. Like, you know, the the male emperor penguins guarding the the egg while the female goes Mm -hmm. off to feed. So that goes on. But what happens if the the young penguin hatches from the egg before the female returns from feeding with fish to regurgitate for it? Apparently, the male penguin will do something like this, will generate some upper digestive tract milk to barf out for the uh, little penguin. And the little penguin gets its nourishment that way. Huh. 
So again, it's it's certainly not milk, but it does seem to be uh, meeting some of the criteria we've discussed. Well, it's a lot like milk mm-hmm. nutritionally. It seems to serve a lot of the same functions and be composed in a pretty similar way. So I don't know. I don't know whether you should call it milk or not. I mean, again, I think if we go by the technical definition, milk is only produced by mammals, so it's not milk. But it looks like milk. It apparently tastes like milk. It does what milk does. Yeah, we could call it bird milk or, or bird nog. I kind of like that. <laughs> bird nog. We want to give it a holiday twist. That's good. Well, how about let, let me take you to the next step. This one might seem unbelievable, but maybe just a tiny bit less so given that birds produce milk-like secretions. What about dino nog? Ooh. So what are birds? They are the dinosaurs that survived the fifth extinction, right? They're the descendants of these feathered dinosaurs that survived when the thing that killed all the other dinosaurs. Now, given that modern birds exhibit a form of what might be considered lactation, is it possible that some dinosaurs also fed their young with milk-like secretions? We don't know the answer to this, but exactly this question is explored by the Australian molecular biologist Paul Else in a 2013 Journal of Experimental Biology paper called Dinosaur Lactation. (laughs) It's like chariots of the gods. (laughs) You know, if you end it with a question mark, you're always safe. (laughs) It's not in all caps, though, I will say that. That is a good point. Uh, But no, this is a fun question. So he says, you know, if dinosaurs did perform something analogous to lactation, we don't know. But if they did, it's another one of the many soft tissue-based biological features that are just going to be extremely difficult to infer from fossilized remains. The bones don't usually tell us things like that. So the only way to try to answer this kind of question is to look at the indirect evidence. And so he's got a few thoughts here. Uh, One of them is about the initial size difference between adults and hatchlings of some dinosaur species. Oh, like especially the sauropods. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So he says like, you know, it almost seems as if it would present mechanical problems in feeding. Uh, He said to – I believe this was to a a campus newspaper. He was speaking about his paper too. Quote, although I work at the molecular level, I'm basically a comparative physiologist. And one thing that always struck me as unresolved about dinosaurs was how a dinosaur parent – several tons could feed young of only a few kilograms. It seemed obvious, a form of lactation similar to that present in birds. Hmm. And then uh, in his paper, he writes, quote, lactation might free large parents from having to feed their newly hatched young the regurgitated products of their own meals that might be unsuited for altricial young based on digestive systems unfamiliar with coarse fodder, like, you know, rough plant matter that adults would be eating and essential nutrient requirements to promote rapid growth and replace this with secretory products. Oh, that's a hard word. Secretory. (laughs) uh, Synthesized by the foregut that are more suited to supporting rapid development. So again, there's obviously some kind of incentive there would be if they could produce something like this. We don't know if they could. So if we entertain that possibility for a second, the dinosaurs produced milk for their young, it's likely they did it in the same way as birds rather than like mammals do. So that would probably mean nutrient-rich secretions from the upper digestive tract that would be barfed up into the little dinosaurs' mouths. 
And paleontologists have discovered evidence that many dinosaur hatchlings grew very quickly. We do seem to have evidence for that, closer to the growth mm-hmm. rate of birds and mammals than of reptiles. And a nutrient-rich parental secretion, especially if it uh, contained these helpful bioadditives like antibodies and growth hormone, uh, as it does in the case of some birds, could help explain this rapid growth. But unfortunately, there's currently no direct evidence for dinosaur milk. Maybe in the future, some paleontologist will come up with a with a clever way of proving that dinosaurs made crop milk. That would be <laughs> awesome. Yeah, uh, maybe. I mean, that's, if we ever get Jurassic Park, that's one of the things that we can also uh, achieve chance to sample all the various dinosaur milks. I wonder which which one would you prefer if you had to have some dinosaur nog? Which uh, species? Oh, I'd probably want to go with a herbivore milk. I don't yeah. know if I'd want to try out a carnivorous dinosaur milk. Yeah. I think I'd probably go for what, uh, Parasaurolophus. I feel like that. That one looks like a good milk dino. Oh, how about Pachycephalosaurus? Ooh, yeah, the 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 big uh, cranial head butters. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think. That, yeah, those are those are those are good uh, good choices that lend themselves to certain branding. You know, <laughs> like one is kind of like the brain milk. Uh, you know, you really want to you know smack craniums with uh, with your 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 coworkers. Well, then you need a you need a bone up on this stuff. How about Triceranog? Ooh, Triceranog is good. Yeah, we'll come back to it. <laughs> This is one I'm going to keep my eye on for years. I'm always going to have it in the back of my mind, waiting for that paper that says dinosaurs did have crop organs. They produced milk. (laughs) All right. Should we take a quick break? Let's do it. All right. We're back. We're talking about strange milk, milk milk-like substances produced by non-mammalian creatures. Now, remember in the episode we did about amphibians with special guest Mark Mandika, Mm -hmm. uh, he was discussing these amazing creatures called Sicilians, not the people from Sicily. Right. But it is spelled C-A-E-C-I-L-I-A-N. Sicilians are amphibians like frogs and salamanders. But unlike frogs and salamanders, Sicilians are completely without legs. Most Sicilians live underground, so we rarely see them. Uh, And if you do see one, you might mistake it for a huge worm. They kind of look like moist, greasy snakes. Mm -hmm. So they're sounding more and more just like an awesome candidate for milk-like substance production. (laughs) Right. So can you milk a Sicilian? Uh, Not exactly, but they do provide their young with nourishing secretions that are sort of milk analogs. Uh, There was a paper by uh, Alexander Kupfer and a bunch of other authors. Alexander Kupfer et al. uh, published in Nature in 2006 called Parental Investment by Skin Feeding in a Sicilian Amphibian. The short version of this is that after the mother of a Sicilian species called Bulangerulia titanus, uh, after she gives birth, she transforms the outer layer of her skin into a nutrient-rich meal for her young offspring. Hmm. And then the young develop, quote, a specialized dentition, which they use to peel and eat the outer layer of their mother's modified skin. So basically, mom turns her skin into cheese, and these juvenile worm-like creatures develop special baby teeth that are designed specifically for eating mom's milk skin. What I love about this example is that not only is it kind of delightfully grotesque and, and again, weirder than anything we could dream up for our horror movies, uh, it also, even though it's not milk, it is a a milk-like behavior, Mm -hmm. it forces you to reevaluate what milk is as a mammalian um, uh, feature. Yeah. 
Well, are, are you saying that even among mammals, we should think about it more like this parent is just ripping off part of their body to give to their young? Uh, yeah, I think so. But, you know, I, I, have, it's, I have heard mothers, uh, nursing mothers, like speak of it in this, in this way, you know, mm-hmm. where they are. And I would love to hear from, uh, from, uh, from anyone out there who's had this experience where, mm-hmm. they're, where they're like, this is so bizarre. Like I'm, old, I'm basically turning my body into this substance yeah. and feeding this little larval human creature. You know, it's a, I, I have frequently heard mothers speak about the weirdness of the whole scenario. But I feel like it is a weird – there is something about milk that for the, the, the rest of the time and for many of us – we just take it for granted. Yeah, it's amazing. We we forget to appreciate the weirdness of reality in so many ways, but this is another one of them. It's crazy. It's amazing. It's around us every day. It's a whole aisle at the grocery store, and it's a crucial part of human life. Uh, and yeah, when you just stop and appreciate the biological realities of it, it it, it is startling. Oh, but uh, one thing I wanted to address about the uh, the Sicilians here. So I want to read a quote from the abstract. Uh, so, quote, this new form of parental care provides a plausible intermediate stage in the evolution of viviparity, which is live birth, in Sicilians. At independence, offspring of viviparous and oviparous, which means egg-laying, dermatotrophic, which means skin-eating, <laughs> Sicilians – are relatively large despite being provided with relatively little yolk. The specialized dentition of skin feeding or dermatophagus uh, Sicilians may constitute a pre-adaptation to the fetal feeding on the oviduct lining of viviparous Sicilians. So there's a lot of Latin words. But (laughs) in other words, the eggs have the advantage of containing a yolk that the young can feed on. And of course, this is why egg yolks are delicious. It's everything a growing body needs. And live birth instead has the young develop and feed inside the mother until they're viable to move around and survive on their own. Species whose young have this intermediate stage where eating their mother's butter skin as a yolk substitute or a supplement could be a, could be an evolutionary stepping stone between these two kinds of birth. Huh. Yeah. So this – and also yeah, this connection between what yolk essentially is and what milk essentially is. It's like uh, the, the the offspring is spat out. It's like, whoa, mom, there w- wasn't enough yolk there. Uh, oh, don't worry. I have something that is like yolk that I will now produce for you to consume. It is very much like yolk, mm-hmm. yeah. And again, both both are involved in eggnog. So there's, yeah, well, there's your holiday connection. Think about the nutritional parallels between egg yolks mm-hmm. and milk. They tend to be high in protein, high in fat, good for growing young bodies. Yes, both useful in making like a, a, you know, a frothy mixed drink, like a, like a Ramos Gin Fizz or something. Wait, is that egg yolk or egg white? Uh, that is usually just the egg, uh, egg white. Okay. Though, uh, you know, there are other drinks that call for the egg yolk as well. I haven't experimented with as many of those. And, of course, there are pr- plenty of drinks that also call for, uh, for milk. Uh, I mean, uh, eggnog uh, is a great example of that because that is, tipped, uh, uh, that is often paired with some sort of uh, a liquor. What's that drink called where you just have a beer and you crack an egg in it? Oh, I don't know. Is that like they a – They drink it on the wire, I think. <laughs> I don't remember the name of that one. It's um, the, like the, the dock workers. Yeah, it, Breakfast yeah. of Champions or something. Never tried it. <laughs> All right, Robert, have you, have you got some strange milk for us? Yeah. So, you know, we're talking about birds. It only, you know, makes sense that we would also turn to the world of fish. Ah, Okay. 
So uh, in particular, we're talking about the discus fish, which is an Amazonian chiclid species. It's a rather unique fish because both mother and father provide sustenance for their hatchlings via mucus secretions. Mm. And of course, this isn't simply a matter of of hatchlings like nipping some mucus from their parents and then swimming off. Uh, This can go on for a month or so. Oh, wow. So it's prolonged. Yeah. Yeah. So it's worth remembering that with with a fish – Slime and mucus uh, or, or mucus, they're, they're very important. It's not merely the stuff that's on their scales, but it constitutes a protective outer layer of their bodies. And it provides a number of key benefits. Um, one of the big ones that's going to be important here is uh, uh, osmoregulation or gas transport. And this is to maintain the internal-external osmotic balance, um, also sometimes referred to uh, you know, dermal respiration. Uh, in addition to this, the mucus or slime provides external protection. It can reduce turbulence. And there are other varieties of fish that also use it as a, a toxin-rich outer coating so it can be protective. Even if it doesn't have toxins in it, it can provide some level of protection. Mm-hmm. You have other particularly slimy fish like the hagfish that use it to their advantage. Uh, it can also uh, – mucus also can serve uh, for water cleansing purposes. It can also form – it can also serve a, a purpose in the cocoon formation in the case of the African lungfish. And some fish also eat their own mucus. Hmm. So a 2010 study looked into this. Uh, it was titled uh, Biparental Mucus Feeding, a Unique Example of Parental Care in an Amazonian Chiclet by Buckley et al. published in the Journal of Experimental Biology. So basically, they broke down not only the nutrient and immunity load of the mucus, but also how it all changed depending on the developmental level of the offspring, very much in line with the milk production of mammals, as we discussed earlier. Mm -hmm. You know, again, remember how milk changes to meet the growing offspring's needs. The authors pointed out that, like, the peak level of mucus antibody uh, uh, provision was seen as offspring reach the free-swimming stage. And this suggested, uh, you know, a role that's very much like uh, uh, what is provided by mammals. Again, so, the, you know, there's a weaning off here. Hmm. Um, you know, they pointed out that the protein was lowest during the second and third weeks of free-swimming uh, during a weaning period. And the, uh, the authors point out that all of this is far more in line with mammalian and avian parental care than anything we see in, in, in other fish. So it's a it's a rather curious example of you know it's not milk it's 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 a little more like the uh, Sicilian example and that we're dealing with an outer la- layer uh, of the creature's skin mm-hmm. um, but uh, but still it's it's providing sustenance for the young and doing so again not in just a an offhead manner like the, the the hatchlings are out and then they just you know grab a bite and run off right it seems like we're steadily progressing further and further from mammals. Like we went to birds and dinosaurs, then we went to amphibians, and then we went to fish, which are still vertebrates, right? (laughs) How much further could we get? Yeah, because it's one of those things where if you just came up to somebody on the street and just surprised them and said, hey, have you ever tried bird milk? (laughs) They might be like, oh, I don't know. And it might take them just a few seconds to be like, hey, wait a second. Uh Only mammals produce milk. But when you start talking about fish milk and, and, uh, you know, or, or insect milk, I think most people aren't going to buy it for a second. They're, they're going to say, you're a crazy person. Stop talking about things that don't exist. Let me talk about things that do exist. <laughs> Robert, go on a mental journey with me. Imagine you are sitting on a park bench in a park somewhere in southern China, mm-hmm. and you feel a tickle on your forearm. Okay. You look down. There's an ant crawling on you. It has a shiny, segmented black body with antennae wiggling in the breeze. But then you look closer – 
those aren't antennae. They're not coming out of the top of its head. They're coming out of the thorax under the head or the cephalothorax. They're legs, Hmm. which means this animal has not six but eight legs. This is not an ant. It is a spider. It's a spider in disguise. Ooh, nice. This is the spider Toxaeus magnus. I've included a picture for you to look at here, Robert. And I, I like the way even in this close-up, the, the shiny black body is like catching a fluorescent light on the ceiling that you can see very clearly. Yeah, and it looks very much like an ant. At first glance, you would just assume this is an ant. You really have to, to stare at it for a second to, to make out all the legs. Yeah, uh, so it's about a centimeter long, Toxaeus magnus, and it's a member of the family Salticidae, the jumping spiders. Magnus is also known as the black ant mimicking jumper, which needs a catchier name, and uh, it's found mostly in Southeast Asia. Now, there are hundreds of species of spider that are professional ant mimics like this. They're known as the uh, myrmecomorphs, and not, they not only look like ants, but they often mimic the behaviors and movement patterns of ants, even lifting and waving their front legs around to make them look like antennae or walking on ant, uh, beep or walking in patterns that copy the locomotion of foraging ants. And you can imagine several reasons spiders might want to look like ants. Uh, The main pressure actually driving this evolutionary path seems to be the avoidance of certain egg sac parasites like spider wasps and predators like mantises and other larger jumping spiders, which kill spiders but usually leave ants alone. And that makes sense, right? I mean, because, of course, obviously you have all these species that have evolved to prey upon spiders. Mm-hmm. But associating yourself with the ants, it's kind of a, a – that's a safer bet because the ants have strength in numbers and they're not the, the solitary uh, uh, prey that a spider would be. Right. Or they might just not be nutritious to eat or something. Mm-hmm. I mean, there might be all kinds of reasons that a predator doesn't really want to go mess with an ant. Yeah. Uh, so just a few weeks ago – a group of researchers mostly based in China, led by a researcher named John uh, Chi Chen, published a study in the journal Science revealing something amazing about these ant mimic spiders. It started with the observation that after the young Magnus spiders hatched from their eggs, they sort of became uh, like what you might call indoor children. <laughs> Instead of leaving the nest, they hung around for a long time, roughly 20 days. And then it gets weirder because not only did they not leave the nest to forage, the mother spider didn't leave the nest to forage either. So it couldn't have been going out to get food to bring back to them. Nobody left home or even went out to the grocery store for almost three weeks. And if you know something about spiders, you'll probably recognize that there's something odd going on here. Like there are some social species of arachnid, but this shouldn't be one of them. Most spiders, including generally uh, salticids, the jumping spiders, are aggressive and even even cannibalistic toward one another. So they don't nest together like this except for those, those small number of social species. What's weirder, during this period of family time, the young spiders grew a lot. If they were growing, they had to be eating. So what were they eating if nobody ever left the nest? You can probably guess where we're going with this. (laughs) 
the authors started watching more closely uh, just what was happening in the nest, and what they found was strange and fascinating. During the first week after hatching, the mother spider would secrete droplets of an unknown white milk-like fluid from a ridge on her underbelly called the epigastric furrow. This is also where the spider's eggs are produced, interestingly. And uh, so after she secreted this fluid, she would leave droplets of it on the walls of the nest for her offspring to eat. And after the first week, the young spiders would just climb right up on her and drink the secretions directly from the Mother Magnus's epigastric furrow. Hmm. So this milk substance feeding took place for the first 40 days of the young spiders' lives. Even after the young spiders finally started leaving the nest to hunt, they would come back. They would come back to the nest and supplement their insect diet by getting more spider milk from the mother. Oh, that's incredible. Yeah. So the researchers also found that when the spiders were unable to feed their young with this spider milk, all the young spiders died within less than two weeks. So it's not just a little something extra. It's necessary for the life cycle of the species. And the spider milk they found is incredibly nutritious. They found that per milliliter, it contained 2 milligrams of sugar, 5.2 milligrams of fat, and 124 milligrams of protein, which is a lot. That's yes. expressed as four times the protein content of cow's milk. <laughs> and, of course, I envision an awesome future whenever we finally chuck it in and just start hawking bogus nutrition supplements to bodybuilders. We're going to do the spider milk protein bomb stack. <laughs> I love this. I really want to incorporate this into uh, Dungeons and Dragons because you have various uh, species, particularly in the Underdark, mm -hmm. um, the, the vast subterranean realm in the setting that uh, depend on spiders. The, the gray dwarves, the Durgar, they have these uh, kind of like uh, pack pony spiders that mm. they use. Yeah. So it makes sense that they would be drinking some sort of spider milk. And now there's a there's a, a scientific reason to incorporate that into everyone's campaigns. Doesn't science always end up proving the D&D monster manual correct? <laughs> it does. Yeah, it does. One of the co-authors on this paper, Richard T. Cortlett, says, quote, Our findings suggest that lactation may arise in non-mammals when it provides a significant advantage in offspring survival. Well, as we've been seeing from the other examples in this episode, that's clearly true. Uh, he also says that it's useful in this species because of the small size of the hatchlings. They're tiny and unable to hunt or at least initially unable to hunt or defend themselves from predators. But ultimately, the researchers don't know why this strange mammal-like trait has evolved in this one species of spider. As far as we know, at least so far, this is the only spider that does this. And it's very weird. And another thing that uh, was pointed out that was pretty weird is that the mother Magnus didn't just offer her milk to the young. She also displays like social parenting behaviors like maintaining a clean and safe nest environment for the young to hang out in. Oh, wow. Which is kind of weird for spiders. All right. Well, on that note, we're going to take another break. And when we come back, uh, you know, we'll, we'll keep having some arachnid milk. All right. We're back. Robert, are you going to feed me with the milk of arachnids? Yes, yes. We have another another arachnid species here that's producing something that's kind of like milk. So we're talking about the pseudoscorpion. Nice. Now, the pseudoscorpion really sounds like something that uh, Jorge Luis Borges would have just made up. Uh -huh. uh, this, it's a, a tiny arachnid that can frequently be found living in old books protecting them from decay by feasting on book lice that munch on the starch-based book-binding glue. That the, is 
That is good. Yeah. I mean, it, it really does sound like something that uh, Borges would have made up. Like, oh, well, the, the old books are home to these tiny creatures and they eat other tiny creatures that, that want to destroy the books. I don't know. It, there's, a, there's something beautiful about it. Yeah. It's like something that would have been imagined in the marginal illustrations in one of the, uh, the, the, the scripts in Name of the Rose. Yes. Yes. Yeah, and, uh, and, and they, they do literally live in the margin. So yeah. <laughs> it makes sense. But uh, if, if you see them, they look kind of like scorpions without tails, like they right. got claws. Yeah, they're sometimes called false scorpions because they are in fact not scorpions despite having these big pinchers. They have some really impressive looking pinchers. And there are some uh, 3,300 species of false scorpion that live around the world. But the most famous is Chalifer cancroides, which can reach four millimeters in length. So I was reading about this. Um, the author Beck Crew has a wonderful post about them on the Scientific American blog titled How Book Scorpions Tend to Your Dusty Tones. <laughs> and she uh, discusses, uh, among other things, their, their dancing and rubbing mating rituals, which sound quite cute. But then it gets really kind of weird and brutal. Quote, he dumps a sack full of sperm on the ground. <laughs> <laughs> and it gets worse because then he pushes the female down into his sack full of sperm on the ground. This whole process can take anywhere from 10 minutes to a whole hour. The sack full of sperm will be taken in by the female's genital orifice and she'll end up producing 20 to 40 eggs, which she'll carry around in her abdomen even after they've hatched. Well, that's weird sex. Yes, yeah. So everything gets a little less Borges and a little more, I don't know, geeker, I guess. Yeah. But, but here's where we get to the sweet uh, uh, book scorpion milk. So the larvae will hang around, and the young, the young uh, book scorpions will even hang out around on her back until they're old enough to go off on their own. But as larvae, they remain inside for a while, living in her genital orifice and feeding on a milk-like substance uh, that uh, secretes from her ovaries. Hmm. So they feast on this stuff, and eventually she's just so emaciated from the consumption uh, that uh, the, 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 the tiny book scorpions just have to leave. Like they, they can no longer hang out in the orifice because there's just not enough uh, book scorpion milk to go around anymore. Ungrateful? Well, you know, she does, she does a lot. She does what she can, and then uh, they have to move on and eat some book lice. Somebody ought to whip some independence into those baby book <laughs> scorpions. Get them eating book lice earlier. <laughs> now, I have another uh, couple of uh, creatures to mention here. These are insects, mm -hmm. uh, but they also illustrate uh, uh, what's going on. So, bat flies. I was not familiar with bat flies, uh, but they are fascinating little creatures. They are, as the name implies, parasites that feed on bats. Mm -hmm. They do not, however, look much like a traditional fly. Whatever you're imagining when I say bat fly, it ain't that. Are we going to try to say the family name of the bat flies? Is it Nycteribidae? Yes, I think okay. that would be my guess, Nycteribidae. Uh, they are wingless, spider-like insects with long legs and a small head that folds back into a groove in the thorax when it rests. So earlier we had a spider that kind of looks like an insect. Here we have uh, an insect that kind of looks like a spider. Huh. They also have a highly developed uterus and milk glands, there, or at least they were referred to as milk glands, so milk in quotation marks here. And these glands seem to play a key role in imparting important bacterial endosymbionts to the offspring. And other insects engage in this kind of behavior as well, as they host bacteria in their cells that provide important boosts that food alone cannot give them. Uh, these endosymbionts are essential. For example, the tsetse fly, hosts a bacterium that provides B vitamins that are not available in, uh, in the fly's normal diet of blood. Isn't it amazing how, like, 
we think that animals rule the world, but like almost all animals are just so dependent on invisible microbes in order to even just get the basic nutrition they need out of their food. Yeah, it's it's crazy. It's crazy. But, uh, but yeah, again, this is a great example of just like, it's almost like a simple model of milk. Hey, baby, you're just going to only eat blood, but there are things you need. Mm-hmm. I will have to provide them uh, through some handy secretions. Well, there's another insect secretion I want to talk about. Oh, what kind of yummy milk do you have for us now? It's cockroach milk time. Oh. So th- you're not a fan of cockroaches, are you? Uh, do you know anyone who is? Oh, I'm sure there are lots well, of people who love cockroaches. I mean, hissing cockroaches are kind of cool. I, th- I think cockroaches are only interesting if they are uh, exotic or they are pets. Nobody uh, wants uh, just free-range uh, cockroaches or palmetto bugs as, you know, we, we regionally call the, the larger ones that invade our homes. Yeah. Nobody wants those around. The, the, like the, we have just They're an inescapable instant, around here. Inescapable, and I feel like we have an instant uh, kill instinct with them. No, yeah. <laughs> no matter how much – you have to be pretty uh, hardcore animal lover to say, oh – uh, the, the the palmetto bug is here. Let me attend to its needs. But smashing one of those Georgia cockroaches is basically like smashing like a three-foot-wide jellyfish. Like it leaves this explosion of, of mucus and liquid everywhere. They mm-hmm. are so big and so juicy. Yeah, and they'll, they, they like to hang out, I've noticed, uh, it, sometimes tauntingly on white walls. Yeah. We're like, oh, I, I can't squish you there because there will be a uh, – the, the, the mark will haunt me forever. You ever walk into the bathroom in the middle of the night, turn the light on, and there's a cockroach on your toothbrush? No, I haven't. I haven't. It's happened to me. Oh, I have not encountered that. Uh, but now I have that that image in my head. Now I will fear it. <laughs> I, I do frequently. You never know. <laughs> I do frequently notice how you'll. I'll go into a room. It might be the you know the kitchen or wherever, and you turn on the light, and it's not. You don't always necessarily see the roach. Uh, uh, all at once, but suddenly something clicks in your mind. Like mm-hmm. there's something, something is off. Like you, you know, you, and then you have to look for it, and then you find it. You know, but uh-huh. we we see we have like a high level of awareness for them. So there is a species of cockroach found in Asia and in the Pacific Islands. I think it's found a lot in Hawaii, known as the Pacific beetle cockroach or Diploptera punctata. And there are several interesting things about the species of cockroach. Uh, first of all, they are the only known truly viviparous cockroach, the only cockroach we know of that has real live birth instead of laying eggs. Huh. Second, this is kind of interesting. They do chemical warfare. They produce an organic compound that's known as uh, quinones from specialized tracheal glands. And this is probably a chemical weapon they use against predators. There are analogies for this. Like quinones are used uh, as part of the chemical defense of the bombardier beetle. And then finally, researchers have discovered that this cockroach who gives live birth to its young also secretes a type of protein-rich, light-yellow, milk-like liquid from her brood sack, and then the young ones drink it. Okay. Tell me more about this roach nog. Well, one of the one of the researchers who first discovered this was the University of Iowa emeritus biologist and insect surgeon, Dr. Barbara Stay. Insect surgeon? Yeah, how do you become an insect surgeon? That sounds like an awesome job. Very delicate hands. Yes. Uh, you got to be like so many steps above like the human neurosurgeon to be an insect <laughs> surgeon. So the cockroach milk begins as a liquid at first and it contains these milk crystals that are full of nutritious proteins and stuff. And then as the young grow, the the, uh, milk begins to sort of like solidify into bigger solid crystals. 
And Dr. Stay apparently developed a process for, quote, milking these cockroaches. Speaking to NPR, she described the process, I guess, pretty simply. She said, quote, you substitute a filter paper in the brood sac for the embryos and you leave it there. After a while, you take it out and you get the milk. Okay, so it's kind of like you stuff a washcloth into the roach and then eventually you take it out and wring it out. Wring it out. That's, yeah, that's about right. So you may have seen some articles about this a couple of years ago because there was a new study in 2016 analyzing the contents of this cockroach milk. And uh, this study was uh, done by a team led by the Indian biochemist Subramanian Ramaswamy. And the researchers found that it was super nutritious. Quote, a single crystal is estimated to contain more than three times the energy of an equivalent mass of dairy milk. This unique storage form of nourishment for developing embryos allows access to a constant supply of complete nutrients. Huh. And uh, by the way, of course, the way this was covered in the press was there was just headline after headline in CNN and everywhere saying uh, that cockroach milk is the next superfood. I'm I'm not grossed out by that. I, I will say as grossed out as I am by uh, by roaches usually. Um, I, I think that falls in line with a lot of what we've been seeing about uh, the consumption of insects. Insects is a protein source. Oh, absolutely. The future is going to be a place where uh, either you eat the bugs or the bugs eat you. Entomophagy is the future. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's no doubt about that. I mean, it is a healthy source of protein that's I think going to be an incredibly important meat substitute in in on future Earth. I have to give a quick shout out to um, the Audubon Society's uh, Insectarium in New Orleans. Mm -hmm. Uh, Wonderful museum with so many different live insect species and some arachnid species to check out. But they also have an area where every time you go, you get to try a few different um, food items that have been prepared with insect protein. Mm. And, uh, did you try them? Oh, I do it every time. Did yeah. you like it? Yeah, well, they they really try and make sure that it's something that you will and can eat, you know. So it's a, generally something sweet, you know, that kids are going to be into. Essentially, uh, you know, cookies topped with mealworms, that sort of a thing. Uh, I, but it's very – I think it's very instructional and, and insightful and I'm, I'm, I'm super glad that they do that and provide that kind of, uh, you know, educational uh, content in addition to just learning about these different uh, uh, insect and arachnid species. I didn't write down what the reference for this was but I did look at uh, – uh, a press release about a study that found that if you wanted to get people – I think what it was was if you wanted to get people to agree to eating insects, you couldn't just appeal to the idea that it was better for the environment or that it was nutritious. You had to convince them that it was a delicious delicacy. Hmm. And if you could do that, they they would eat the insects. Hmm. Interesting. I, I, yeah, I would love to look at this topic more and see what – what people were doing along those lines. Because, yeah, we, we often come back to the fact that, like, what's the difference ultimately between eating various types of insects and eating shrimp or crawdads or what have you? Oh, yeah, lobster. Yeah, mm-hmm. lobster. Why is that different? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, I would love to talk about uh, about eating insects more in the future. But I've gotten off topic here. Let's get back to that uh, delicious roach knock. Well, so the, I brought that up just to say that it's probably not true that cockroach milk is the next superfood. I think those uh, were just some headline grabbers. Yeah. Uh, number one, we don't know that the milk is safe for human consumption. Humans can often become allergic to cockroaches. Uh, we, we don't have a way of milking them at any kind of volume. 
So it is really interesting research nonetheless, though, a couple of reasons. But generally, it has to do with the idea of studying the proteins in these crystals in the roach milk to see if they can be replicated in other production scenarios, say by E. coli or by yeast, mm. uh, in ways that could deliver better technologies for medicine or nutrition. And I was reading an interesting blog post by a biologist or an entomologist named uh, Joe Ballinger. And in this post, he, he pointed out that the real discovery here was – that there's this protein structure in the in the cockroach milk that includes a protein that kind of serves as a delivery pocket that could be used in other contexts to shuttle drugs or substances around inside the body. And of course, that's relevant uh, anytime you've got some kind of delivery or micro delivery system mm -hmm. that's relevant to future medicines. As for taste, on the other hand, reportedly one of uh, Ramaswamy's colleagues tried the cockroach milk on a dare, I think maybe because he lost a drinking game or something, mm -hmm. and, quote, he said it doesn't taste like anything special. <laughs> well, I, I wonder how much he drank, though. Like, essentially, if he just, it was like a, you know, he, he dabbed a, a tiny uh, uh, you know, droplet of it, or if he had like a full milk glass of the stuff. Like he drank a quart of it. Yeah, I imagine he just This came from a million cockroaches. <laughs> The milk of a million cockroaches. It does sound lovely, doesn't it? Well, that's it for our sampling of non-mammalian milks to discuss here. You know, we didn't even get into some of the, the fictional milks out there that have been consumed. How about those creatures in uh, the most recent Star Wars film? Oh, in The Last Jedi where yeah. Luke Skywalker is drinking, is it green or is it blue milk I, that I comes out? I think it's out? blue. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that that's like the best scene. I loved that. It kind of made the movie for me. Yeah, I, I enjoyed that film. I did too. Um uh, you know, another one that comes to mind, it's been a long time since I've seen this, but the David Cronenberg adaptation of William Burroughs' Naked Lunch, mm -hmm. I believe the mudwomp creatures in that uh, film uh, secreted some sort of substance that was uh, consumed by um, uh, by various characters. Mm -hmm. Been a while since I've seen it. I don't exactly remember what the whole deal was there. I must confess, I've never seen it. Oh, uh, it's it's interesting. Uh -huh. uh, and, uh, the, the book is a, a classic of its generation. But offhand, I can't think of any other, um, you know, key uh, like alien milks or monster milks in uh, in cinema or fiction. Though this would be a good thing to to call out to our our listeners about. Uh, what what are some of your your favorite or at least notable examples of uh, of non mammalian, uh, you know, uh, fictional creature milks out there? And indeed, uh, I want to know what dinosaur milks other people would like to consume. <laughs> Now, as I said earlier in this episode, while I've really enjoyed exploring this anomalous non-mammalian milk, we could probably do a whole show in the future just on the magic of true milk, of mammal milk. Oh, yes. it, it, it is a fascinating subject and there's a lot we didn't even have time to talk about today. Likewise, I would love to do an episode uh, that goes more in depth on cockroaches. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, there, there's a whole lot there that we didn't even uh, touch on here today or squash beneath our boot. They're six-legged saints. <laughs> All right. Well, um, uh, we thank you for listening to this episode in which we discuss the milk of the six-legged saint. And uh, we hope you'll tune in some more. We have a couple of other uh, uh, holiday episodes coming up, uh, more, than I, more than I expected. But uh, I think I'm, I'm embracing the holidays a little more this year. You've been leaning in. I have. You, the people out there, you're going to be surprised at all the stuff Robert has wanted to talk about this month. I I'm, I'm think I'm giving in to the holidays this year. I've, yeah. I finally realized that it's not, it's not courage to fight it. It's courage uh, to, to give in uh, to 
uh, paraphrase a quote from uh, my, one of my favorite holiday films, Ravenous. Uh, so, uh, <laughs> hey, if you want to uh, listen to other episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind or keep an eye out for new ones, head on over to the mothership, stufftoblowyourmind.com. That's where you'll find all the episodes. Links out to our various, various social media accounts. And there's also a button at the top of the page for our store. That's our Tee Public store where you'll find all sorts of cool shirts, stickers, throw pillows, uh, tote bags, you name it. it. has logos for the show and also some other cool designs like uh, Cambrian Life logo, the uh, Skug, King of the Rats, uh, All Hail the Great Basilisk, uh, all that sort of stuff. It's a great way to support the show. But if you want to support the show without spending a dime, rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. It really helps us out. Big thanks, as always, to our super awesome audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback about this episode or any other, or would like to suggest a topic for the future, or just get in touch and say hi, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.